would you like to go ahead and read the thing? Yes, it's going to be a short thing today because we've got oh so boy. much story to get to that the, the little teaser at the beginning, it's just going to be like a, like a cold open. All right. A man is standing with his back to the wall, peering through the windows of the jailhouse. In his hands, he holds a long rifle, loaded and ready. In his eyes, he sees the massive people outside in the street holding official court documents. In his mind, the singular question, how did we get here? This is the story of an election, a voter's choice between a wannabe dictator intent on enforcing his strict, personal religious law on the people, and a group of local residents who had decided that enough is enough and had voted him and his slate of candidates out. The vote itself was straightforward, with its tallies beyond question or reproach. What came before, and what came directly after, well, that's the subject of this episode of Relative Disasters. The 1909 Municipal Election of Zion, Illinois. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my sister and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Greg, Elections Director for West Relative Disasterville. And I'm Ella. I'm the Head of Vote Verification for the Municipality of East Relative Disasterville. Thank you so much for that horrifying story. Yes, yeah, uh, this one This one is an interesting one. Um, so first of all, I want to begin by citing the primary sources for this episode. Uh, mm -hmm. As far as books go, they are the books Zion City, Illinois, 20th Century Utopia by P.L. Cook, Heaven Below, Early Pentecostals in American Culture by G. Wacker, and Flat Earth, The History of an Infamous Idea by C. Garwood. Most importantly, I want to thank the several knowledgeable historians of Zion, Illinois itself that were kind and gracious enough to be interviewed. Awesome. Um, yeah, that was really cool of them, and uh, and I'm, I'm very grateful to them. I also want to thank the Illinois Digital Newspaper Collections hosted by the University of Illinois and the Illinois Newspaper Collection hosted by VitaCollections.ca for the use of their collections of the Zion City Independent, the Zion Herald, and the Lake County Independent and Waukegan Weekly Sun newspapers. He went all out for this one, huh? I <laughs> love this story. I'd also like to say that the modern city of Zion is just a regular American city with about 24,000 people living there, and I want to stress that the Zion of years past is nothing like the modern Zion, where people enjoy voting rights and religious freedom, which, as we'll discuss, was not always the case. Hmm. At any rate, I do hope that our beloved listeners will join us with empathy and a, gee, that's crazy, glad they don't do that anymore mindset for this story. Our intent here is not to ridicule or belittle the people of Zion, although certain citizens of Zion's past are certainly not going to come out of this story smelling like roses, but that's their own fault. All the people I spoke to to do research for this story were lovely people. Awesome. Also, I am fighting a head cold, so if my voice sounds weird, that's why. Okay, so let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. Mm -hmm. In order to understand Zion, we have to understand its founder. Its founder was a man named John Alexander Dowie. John Alexander Dowie was born in 1847 in Edinburgh, Scotland. Mm -hmm. In 1860, his family emigrated to Australia, and in 1867, Dowie returned to Edinburgh to study theology and was ordained in 1872. He ministered first back in Australia, 
first in the city of Alma, South Australia, and then in Manly, New South Wales, and then in Newtown, New South Wales. Uh, then he married his cousin Jane, uh, and in, yep, yeah, they had three kids. Okay. Um, <laughs> anyway, in Newtown, he finally hit on the idea that would eventually lead to Zion. Newtown was going through a particularly bad run of scarlet fever and measles at the time, with lots of kids uh, dying. Mm -hmm. And doctors, without the vaccines that would come along in about 100 years, were particularly helpless in the face of these twin outbreaks. So Dowie began to preach that doctors were, in fact, useless, and the only way to actually cure anything was through prayer. And he became a faith healer. Hmm. As so, you do. Yes, as you do. Uh, so, <laughs> so, wait, he had formal yeah. theology training. Yes. I guess I just always think of faith healers as being homegrown. Faith healing, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with the concept, uh, is the faith that a faith healing preacher has been touched by God or granted special gifts and powers, and the laying on of hands of that preacher will heal you as a miracle. Hmm. Uh, faith healing has been around since ancient religions ascribed healing powers to natural springs, and current snake oil salesmen still do. Uh, but the particularly Christian idea of faith healing had been largely passé by around 900 BCE, where healers were encouraged to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and be healers, but it was a combination of prayer and folk remedies to heal people. Uh, and as medicine evolved out of those folk remedies faith healing became less and less part of Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, then in the mid-1800s, right around the time that Dowie started to do this, uh, is when certain branches of Christianity began to create what we'd come to see as modern faith healing, with illness being viewed as the work of the devil and faith being the only thing that can heal the sick. Interesting. Yeah. So he's so, still in Australia at this point. He's in Australia right okay. now. He's in the town of Newtown, which is going through a, you know, a bunch of diseases that are killing kids. So Dowie begins to get a reputation, both good and bad, throughout his little corner of Australia as a faith healer. Mm -hmm. And at this time, he breaks with the Congregationalist Church. He decides that they are not, uh, they're not doing what he wants them to do. They're not on top of things. So he forms his own religion. I mean. <laughs> yep. Might a as well. Christian religion? Yes. Like his own it branch is, of Christianity? Yes. Okay. It is called the Free Christian Church. Well, that doesn't uh, sound too bad, Greg. It's not too bad. Uh, he is staunchly anti-alcohol. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind that this is the temperance movement of the late 1800s is going yeah. on. Uh, he is very strongly anti-doctor. Uh, and he began to refuse to acknowledge worldly authority over him, meaning he, he the law does not apply to him. So he gets arrested a bunch of times uh, mm -hmm. for leading unauthorized temperance marches, uh, hmm. mostly. Sometimes it was for debts. And then in 1885, his daughter Jeannie dies of bronchitis. Mm -hmm. um, well, so, that's a bad look because he's a faith healer. Because he's a faith healer, yep. exactly. But he spins it. You know, he spins it as it was It was her time and God wanted to call her home sort of language. Um, but between the souring relationship with his followers in Australia and the death of one of his daughters, he and his family left Australia for the United States. So. Can I just say, these people are traveling a lot more than you would expect. Yeah, Scotland, Australia, back to Scotland, back to Australia, and over to the U.S. Yeah. This is like 
the 1840s? Oh, yeah. Everything was done by ship. No, oh, this is God. the 18, 1870s, 1880s. 1870s. Okay. Well, they're still, like, on boats half their lives. Oh, yeah. Yep. They're on ships. Getting those frequent sailor miles. <laughs> yep. 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 You got to get those good deals. Rack up and... the Columbus Club. <laughs> God. And where does he land in the U.S.? So he arrives in San Francisco in uh... 1888. Now, now... Our loyal listeners will remember that a mere eight years earlier, we lost our beloved Emperor Norton the first. That's right. Emperor Norton would have squashed this, I think. Well, here's the thing. Uh, become best his experience, friends I, he, he might have been able to save <laughs> Dowie. Uh, his experience in San Francisco was very much not like our beloved Emperor. Uh, mm. So he arrives in San Francisco and immediately begins picking fights. He attacks not only spiritualism, which was the favorite punching bag of the day, mm. all the religions sort of ganged up and beat up on spiritualism, which was going through its own revival at the time where people were claiming to be mediums and speaking with the dead and knocking on tables and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but he also picked fights with Roman Catholicism, Islam, Buddhism, Unitarianism, Mormonism. The big guys. Me- oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, he picked fights with the Mormons, the Methodists, the Christian scientists, and reserved special venom for the Freemasons. Huh. Uh, he issued a statement that said American Protestantism is, quote, an utter failure and, quote, had no moral fiber whatsoever. This guy quote. just got here, though. He did. He's it's been living true. in Australia. He's been living in Scotland. Are we that bad at that time? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, well, surprisingly, the people of San Francisco weren't huge fans of his sermons, uh, and huh. he fled California and became a wandering preacher, and he wandered everywhere. He hits Ohio, Maine, Georgia, like just ping-ponging all over the U.S., uh, holding these faith-healing tent shows mm-hmm. all over the U.S., okay? And then the big moment happens. In 1893, he struck gold. Uh, he headed to Chicago just in time for the World's Fair. Mm. And he did this genius move where he set up shop in this little wooden shack right across the street from the World's Fair. Okay. He invited anyone to come and be healed and set up a little museum of the crutches and braces of those that he'd healed and they've left them behind. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is a bold move and it pays off big. Uh, He draws huge crowds of fairgoers. He uses plants in the crowd to be miraculously healed. He gets a ton of money, and most importantly, he gets a ton of press coverage. People begin to flock to Dowie, and thanks to compulsory tithing that goes directly to him, he begins to live in the lifestyle he wanted. He starts buying up a bunch of buildings in Chicago, including a seven-story home for himself, his wife, his son, his surviving daughter, and a number of his followers. Uh, He also finds himself in court, fighting charges of practicing medicine without a license. No! Uh, Yeah. Uh, especially after a number of people die under his, air quotes, care. Oh, yeah. 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 That'll yeah. do it. Yep. So, and he has this weird love-hate relationship with Chicago. He he keeps trying to convert them to mm-hmm. being his followers, and they keep running him out of town on a rail, but he keeps going back. It's kind of bizarre. And, and it's a very I will say this about Dowie. Well, I'll say this about Dowie. He mm-hmm. is persistent. So, finally, in 1900... He secretly, and seriously, he used, like, disguises and such. Mm -hmm. Um, There's one instance of him doing this with a false beard and a couple other things. Uh, He purchases 6,500 acres of land about 40 miles north of Chicago, just south of the Wisconsin border. This costs him about one and a quarter million dollars in 1900. 
Right. Yes, of course I did the math on this. It works out to about $33 million today. He was getting some tithes, I guess. Well, that's the the thing about this guy. He was selling None of some that money, faith cures. Exactly. None of that money comes from him. Of course. He raises it by selling shares in the, quote, Zion Land and Investment Company, end quote, with himself as the sole owner and CEO and COO and everything of, of this company. Uh, a single share was $100 and guaranteed its investors a 6% per annum return. Uh, but anyone actually attempting to redeem their shares would run into the nasty surprise that all of the land in the town literally belonged to Dowie personally. Most of his followers just wrote it off as extra tithing or donations. I will say this is a very elegant grift for the times. Oh, 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 the grift gets better. This we is... haven't even hit on his, his, his master stroke. <laughs> He's off stroke. to a his, great start. <laughs> his master stroke is coming. All right. Um, and we got to take a quick sidebar here because this town is actually really neat. It is one of the few pre-planned cities in the United States uh, with every location and street laid out before any ground was broken. So Dowie modeled the city after the Union Jack flag, apparently to honor Scotland and Australia. It's made up of radiating streets that all lead to the building at the center, mm -hmm. which would be the Grand Shiloh Tabernacle. Uh, oh, <laughs> this building was something between like a church and a stadium. It could seat thousands. Okay. Um, Great. Also, fun fact, all of the north-south roads are given biblical names, except mm -hmm. for two, Caledonia and Edina streets, which take their names from the old Roman names for Scotland and Edinburgh. Interesting. Um, and the east-west streets were all given numbers. Uh, in modern Zion, most of the streets have been since renamed. Anyway, uh, about 6,000 of his followers followed him, and settled Zion, which was officially incorporated in 1902. The town motto was, Where God rules, man prospers. Oh, boy. So there's already an economic edge to this. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. 1902 was also the year that Dowie's second daughter, Esther, spilled a lit oil lamp on herself and burned to death, which oh, is just honey. horrible. Yeah. Uh, she was 19 years old, and oh. again, the faith healer couldn't save his own child. That is really awful. It is really awful. Um, yeah. Uh, Dowie's faith remained unshaken, however, because his plan was almost finished. Uh, this was not his religious plan, mind you. He was about to get rich. <laughs> uh, if we look back on the formation of the town now, mm -hmm. it's a pretty simple, though with a religious wrinkle, confidence scheme, which basically amounts to securities fraud. Dowie's faithful were tithing to him, but living off their income wasn't enough for him, so he forced his followers to donate all of their money in the Bank of Zion, which is not a registered bank, but was uh -huh. an unincorporated entity under his control. Okay. And he spends it as if it's his money as well. Basically, all the money that his followers had was in his piggy bank. He was also very fond of selling stock in non-existent businesses to his followers and outside investors. He got sued a bunch of times over this. He had to go to court for fraud a bunch of times over this. Um, he had a personal fortune of about four and a half million dollars. I just... Yeah. He went to theology school. Yes, and he did. did they cover... Jesus Morality and the money lenders? Did they, did they go nope. through the Ten Commandments? Did, was he, like, I, sick know, that day? I, maybe, he, maybe he skipped a few classes. Because I'm not sure. This is, like, the prosperity gospel taken to a really uncomfortable Well, not only that, point. but he's the lesser of our two villains, okay? Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. 
So anyway, so Dowie's got a personal fortune of around four and a half million dollars, and the people who loved and followed him were struggling to put food on the table, okay? <laughs> Dowie's spending was extravagant. He had a 25-room mansion built for him and his family, and I haven't been able to track down the numbers on this. The best estimate of it from a couple of sources was that the house itself cost about twenty five thousand mm-hmm. dollars and then he spent another fifty thousand dollars on furniture and books i mean it's easy to do if you like first you editions like. yeah yep yep yeah so the heart of the scheme revolved around the following only members of dowie's church were allowed to buy land but they weren't actually buying the land remember dowie owns all the square acreage of the city and the money instead they were being offered 999-year leases. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, yes. Yep. The terms of which allowed Dowie to revoke said leases at any time for any reason. Mm. Okay. The second prong is that every resident in the town was guaranteed employment by Zion Industries Incorporated, which was the operating interest behind every business in town whether it was the Lumberyard, the Water and Power Company, the Lace Making Factory, or the Zion Fig Bar Company. The, the Zion Fig Bar Company was like a big hit. This thing was, was like the snack to have in the 1930s through 50s. It was fantastic. Figs are delicious. And, and, and it's biblical, too. They, they went searching through, through the Bible for a good snack, and they came across the fig, and they went with fig bars. You can't go wrong. I mean, aren't they a corporate sponsor of this podcast, though? Uh, they, they have been out of business for nearly 70 years okay. now. So we don't need to tell you they're delicious no, and we affordable. Don't, we don't. So everybody was paid equally, which was interesting. So a manager made as much as the person working on the assembly line. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody tithed. And everybody had to keep their money at the Zion Bank. I mean, money is becoming an abstract concept at this point because these yes. people don't own any property. They it's, don't it's have It's just like being paid in money. scrip. Yeah. It's basically a company town. Except that they're being paid in real dollars. They're not being paid in script, but those real dollars never really are theirs. But what are they getting out of this? They are living in paradise. Is it? Because is it here's paradise, the thing about though? Zion. Working at the it Fig is, Bar factory and not getting paid? It is for these 6,000 followers because what they wanted was a place where they could go and worship freely. Mm-hmm. And by all accounts, for all of his financial chicanery, John Alexander Dowie was a great preacher. He was really charismatic. He was very funny and kind and warm. Everybody in the town basically thought of him as a second father figure mm-hmm. while he's fleecing them, but that's beside the point. Yeah. And and Zion was like a model town for people who were into that kind of morality. There was there were a bunch of laws that we'll get into later. We'll get into the, the law codes of Zion. Yeah, I'm very curious. I have curious. a whole section of it. <laughs> but, like, it was, it was it, for the followers of Dowie, it was a safe, kind, warm, hospitable environment to raise their kids. All right. And that's what we all want in the end of the day. So, uh, But, unfortunately, what that meant was no matter where you worked or where you lived in Zion... John Alexander Dowie was the final word. He controlled the land your house sat on and the money that you earned. So Dowie also starts becoming more and more extravagant with his personality. Uh, He gets an honorary divinity degree. I could not track down which university gave it to him. Uh, But he begins presenting himself as Dr. Dowie. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Oh, yes. 
And then one day in 1901, he shows up to the Shiloh Tabernacle to preach in robes of blue, gold, and white and declares himself Elijah the Restorer, the spiritual return of the prophet Elijah. Okay. Now, he traveled the world preaching his message all on the townspeople dime, right? Like, all of the money that they... He spent as much as $500,000 on one... Uh, one visit to New York was mm-hmm. one of the things that I found. Um, he traveled and lived in luxury with the Elijah robes themselves, costing as much as $7,000 in 1901 money. However, uh, basic math was about to ambush him in a dark alley because he'd been spending his followers' money for years, keeping himself living the high life, but gradually mm-hmm. driving them all to poverty. So what was going to happen when the money ran out? That's right. Yeah. It's, it's starting to collapse in on him. Well, his wife and son didn't wait to find out. They left him in 1904. Uh, in 1905, Dowie had a stroke. Mm-hmm. The financial structure of Zion was to appear constantly in debt, with Dowie pocketing all the difference, and without him to maintain the complex juggling of funds that the scheme required, the whole thing collapses. Oh, I mean, Elijah the healer. He's busy. He can't. Elijah the restorer. Elijah the, the restorer. restorer. My bad. Yeah. Yep. Well, if you do lose money, maybe Elijah can yeah. magic it back Restore up. it. Yeah. Oh, I, I just, I'm so uncomfortable with this. The whole idea of oh. people oh, I know. getting screwed over to this extent is... Oh, and willingly. Like, this is This is a lot of, a lot of, like, people, like, signing up for it. Mm. So, the scheme collapses out from under him because he has, you know, he has a stroke. He can't keep up with it. Enter... Wilbur Glenn Voliva. Oh, boy. Wilbur Glenn Voliva was born in Indiana in 1870. He studied to be a minister at Union Christian College in Merrim, Indiana, and in 1898, dissatisfied with the more mainstream peace, kindness, and charity Christianity. Mm, That is pretty boring. He joins Dowie's church. Right. Dowie at least is exciting. I bet. Yeah. I bet that's at least part of the attraction. Absolutely. You're, you're literally taking your life in his hands. <laughs> it's a thrill a minute. So uh, Voliva presented as a very serious-minded preacher, quickly rising up the ranks to become an elder in the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Dowie, he lost a child to sickness. His son Paul uh, died at four years old from what was probably spinal meningitis. Oh, poor baby. As he moved up the inner circle of Dowie's church... Volvo was given more and more responsibility and power, eventually being sent to Australia to manage the branch of Dowie's church there. When Dowie had his stroke, he had the elders of the church recall Volvo to oversee the city while he recovered. That was his fatal mistake. Volvo was nakedly and unapologetically ambitious, and he seized this chance to depose Dowie and take over the church himself. Dowie's extravagant spending had been generating an undercurrent of resentment in all but the most fervently devout. And his, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and his world preaching tours had been insanely expensive. He was also obviously slipping into senility. Mm-hmm. And walking around in golden robes and calling himself Elijah was just a little much for everybody. But if it had just been the spending and the eccentricities, his community would have probably forgiven him. So Volova knew he needed some real dirt to discredit and destroy Dowie. After oh all, Zion was a proud theocracy ruled by God himself through his prophet. So in a thundering speech denouncing him, Volova hits him with charges of polygamy. 
As really? Full of a, yes. That he was goes, what he picked. He, okay. He goes for the sex scandal. I mean, you do get more headlines with the sex scandal. He, oh, we'll get into that. Uh, as Volova claimed, Dowie was planning a secret harem of seven wives. Oh, boy. Oh, yes. Uh, and Dowie's estranged wife, Jane, came forward with lurid tales of secret arrangements and threatened violence if she said anything. Oh, uh, Dowie disowns his wife and son and tries to bring conspiracy charges against Volova. But Volova had already removed any elders that disagreed with him, and since he controlled the police of Zion, nothing mm-hmm. came of it. Newspapers across the country couldn't resist the sex scandal involving such a wild religious figure, and humiliated in the press and shunned by his followers, Dowie retired to his mansion and died there in 1907. It is worth noting that there was never any proof of any of this, but once the rumor spread, it didn't matter. Volova was now in complete control of Zion. I mean, my feeling is once you spend $7,000 on robes and you start calling yourself Elijah yeah. the Magnificent, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the ladies are right behind that. So if he didn't have them at the time of his death, they were coming. Okay, fair. Fair. Right? No, that's fair. I can, yep. I can see how that if, would end. If only for the fashion points. Right? <laughs> Everybody wants to be with the person who has the cool outfit. Now, the city was still screwed financially, and mm. Volova figured out that the best way to get out from under the crushing debt and bring the town back to prosperity was to uh, follow a multi-step plan. So declare bankruptcy, reorganize the city's industries, and offer to let people buy their way out of the 999-year land leases and actually own their own land. Well, that sounds great. I'm sure people were behind that, and everything worked out, and everything was great. Yep. Uh, Nope. And that is the end of this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Good night, everybody. Uh, So that last step, allowing Uh people to actually own their own land, led to a radical change in Zion. Because, for the first time, Non-members of the church could live there, mm-hmm. set up businesses there, and even, gasp and shock and horror, choose their own church. Yikes. It's also important to note the change in attitude from the top of Zion. John Alexander Dowie, as we said before, even when his financial crimes were revealed and after the charges of immorality, was viewed as a sort of gentle, grandfatherly figure. There's a lot of talk of him, like, laughing with children and quick with a kind word or laying on hands for those who wanted comfort. I mean, he was laughing with them while he was picking their pockets, but the people of Zion genuinely seemed to love Dowie as a person. In fact, uh, after Volova's coup was complete, Dowie still had a number of adherents who refused to abandon him and stayed with him in his mansion until his death. I mean, he's got plenty of room and it's the one building in town that's actually paid for. I mean, there is that. Uh, Wilbur Glenn Voliva was an entirely different sort of man. Uh, mm-hmm. The kindest description I could find of him from the contemporary writings and newspapers was, uh, quote, sober and serious, end quote. Most referred to him as dour, cruel, dictatorial, and grim. Uh, oh, whereas dear. Dowie had been paternal and, and preached peace, redemption, and healing, Voliva's sermons were harsh and full of hellfire and brimstone rhetoric. He was one of those guys who hated everything. And while the religious community of Zion had always had restrictive faith-based laws, uh, they barred such things as smoking, drinking, non-kosher foods, immodest dress, uh, theaters, gambling, Masonic lodges, and other fraternal orders, medicines, hospitals, doctors, and sorcerers. Mm-hmm. Under Volova's iron fist, those laws became even more constrictive. Uh, bathing suits were banned. Uh, swimming with members of the opposite gender was banned, keeping in yep. mind that Zion has some really beautiful lakefront property. 
Uh, and one of my favorites was married couples were not allowed to be within 50 feet of each other when the other was bathing. Not swimming, but like in a bathtub. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You need a certain type of house for that, but uh, uh, yeah, it does it does do a lot for. Or you need marriage. to go for a walk or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, he banned oh, kissing. Who's he enforcing banned... these? I the police Who's measuring of Zion. your bathtub. <laughs> okay, so the police of Zion were like, think of them not as like a a police force. Think of them more of like a secret police. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would they would walk the streets in white robes, with uh, a truncheon. And a Bible in their holster. Oh, I love this. Yes. Uh, and they would cite specific biblical passages that you were violating. Uh, and, and you know, shame, shame, shame on you. They very rarely, I guess, uh, arrested people. But when they did, it was usually pretty bad. But anyway. uh, Did they have a jail? What was their jail like? Yes, they had a jail. They had, like they a, had a cave made out of, of Bibles? Uh, that would have been great. It was just a bunch of Bibles, like, mortared <laughs> together. No, it was just a regular building. Okay. Uh, so Volova also banned kissing, eyeglasses, pants for women, and dresses that had open collars. I'm sorry, uh, eyeglasses? Yes, eyeglasses were banned. Are those sinful? Yes. I have never uh, in my you, life heard that, you and are I'm not old. Supposed to, I, mean, it, I guess his reasoning was that, you know, God made your body perfectly, so if you're supposed to be near or farsighted, then that's what you're supposed to be. I don't know. Uh, women's suffrage was a criminal offense, so if okay. you were out there trying to get the the right for women to vote you would be thrown in jail coughing in church was also a big no-no uh and no activity other than going to church was permitted on sunday right and that means like you couldn't like it wasn't just like don't go mow the lawn it was like every shop was closed you couldn't go visit your neighbors you were supposed to go to church and then go home and uh, and uh, the the cherry on top was when he denounced uh, Santa Claus as a tool of Satan. Well, I mean, we're going to have to agree to disagree about that, but I can mm. see where he's coming from. He basically wants nobody to have any fun, and if you can't see, that's a good thing. Yes. Okay. This just is is to give you the kind of idea this guy is. What where Dowie had relied on. This I love charisma. him. I would watch the hell out of a miniseries starring this dude because I want to know what's going to happen. Well, we'll get to that too. He's setting himself up. He's setting himself he, up for oh something God. magnificent. I can feel it. <laughs> so while Dowie had relied on his charisma to make his followers swallow some of his less than pleasant laws, Volova has all the charisma of like an angry rock. Okay. Yeah. He, he is not somebody that you want to uh, have to deal with on a regular basis. Unsurprisingly, uh, these new restrictions led to some grumblings and dissent from within the church's membership, though he'd quickly purged anyone who had any real power to challenge him. Mm-hmm. And of course... The newly formed independents, people who had moved to Zion and did not belong to the church, uh, found the laws ridiculous and unconstitutional. Right. The, the system was rigged, however. Zion's police uh, force... Just, just yeah. uh, to be fair, those are all ridiculous laws. Yes. And if oh, the yeah. founders of the Constitution had thought to include an eyeglasses clause... Ben Franklin would have had something to say about it. It would have been unconstitutional. Um, okay. Sorry, and, and the main thing is that anybody trying to protest, the system was rigged against them. As we said yep. before, Zion's police force was made up of only church members and were, in fact, nothing more than the military arm of Volova's tiny empire. With Bibles. Uh, Vo- yeah, with Bibles. Gotcha. Volova's theocratic party uh, won every election in landslides, not even bothering to hide the vote rigging and tampering. In one ah. reported case, Volova simply had the ballots delivered to his office and filled them out himself. 
And that brings us to 1909. So, the independents had slowly grown in numbers, and their hatred for Voliva was calcified. Uh, for years, he had publicly denounced them as godless, as filth, their children as, quote, rats and dogs, end quote, mm-hmm. and their churches as, quote, heathen monkey houses, unquote. They were coughing in there. I heard them. <laughs> <laughs> All of this comes to a head in the 1909 municipal election, where for the first time, it was going to be an actual election. Mm -hmm. The state of Illinois was going to be overseeing and verifying the results. And while Volovo was sure that his usual ballot box shenanigans would be enough to win, quote unquote, another election for his handpicked candidates, he made sure to make the fight as nasty as possible. Before we get into the election... Let's talk about Volova's actual position. Zion had a mayor and a city council, but their entire job was to simply rubber stamp whatever Volova told them. Wilbur Volova's actual position was that of general overseer, to which he had been sham elected in 1907, and with its loosely defined powers and terms basically made him the dictator of the small town for as long as he wanted to keep the job. He couldn't be voted out. That's the important part. But all of his candidates, which were members of his, you know, church could right all right now we're going to take a a, a, a a somewhat lengthy sidebar because i want to go over the dictator's playbook a handy reference guide for anyone who wants to set up their own little empire and either die of old age disgraced and hated or be shot by the next person who wants your throne so this is how this is how you become a dictator you ready i know i know you're taking notes <clears throat> step one identify the enemy You want your group of sycophants and sympathetics to be angry and not thinking for themselves. Thought is bad. Rage is a useful tool to get people to do what you tell them. So you want your adherents to be as angry and afraid as possible. You need to give them an enemy. Find an ethnic minority. Find a foreign group of people. Find some excuse. It doesn't matter what the excuse is. You can just make one up. And then relentlessly blame that group for all of the problems of your people. Volova basically had too many to choose from. He Attacking Christianity, except for his own interpretation of it. Everyone else is worshipping a false god. Mm-hmm. Uh, he attacked Islam, Judaism, and the American government. Anyone who didn't share the beliefs of Volova's church was the enemy. And they deserved to die. This is not, like, me interpreting his rhetoric. This is him literally stating it from the pulpit. Okay. Step two, attack the press. Do it constantly and unrelentingly. Volova was an expert at this. He would issue these inflammatory statements that were bait, really, that the newspapers of the time couldn't help but to take. You've got to constantly attack the people who report on you, and you've got to start right away. What this does is create the impression among your adherents that you're unfairly victimized by said reporting. Any report that makes you look good is, oh, finally, they're being fair, and any report that shows your level of corruption and moral failing can easily be dismissed as unfair or fake. Step three, lie. Lie all the time, but only to make yourself look better. Dowie claimed that he had healed thousands during his tour of the U.S., but his tents held tiny amounts of people. Even if he had healed literally every person who stepped into his tents, he wouldn't have made that number. Volova would issue the election results of his rigged elections with a straight face, declaring that he had won with 100% of the vote, and anyone who claimed that they had voted against him was a liar. Volova would see enemies in everyone and wasted no time inventing stories to discredit them. See how he took over the town in the first place. Step four, militarize. Now that you've got your people scared, 
angry, feeling isolated from everyone else they could have common ground with, and believing every word that comes out of your lying mouth, well, let's get them armed. Under Volova's rule, the morality police of Zion became a scarily militarized group, where before they had carried truncheons and billy clubs, now they were armed with pistols, rifles, and shotguns. Well, they still carried their Bibles in their special Bible holsters, which Great. I love, by the way. <laughs> Where uh, do I get one of those? Not for a Bible, of, just for like just snacks. For whatever. Yeah, snacks would be great. Okay. They they would use those Bibles instead of, like we said before, they'd pull them out to like reference the specific religious violation. Right, this I love time that. they would just use them to beat people. Okay. Uh, I don't love Vol- that at all. No, it's not great. Volova encouraged his congregation towards violence from the pulpit, exhorting them to arm themselves to resist the will of Satan, which, of course, was whatever Volova said it was. People just going about their business were being dragged out of their stores and beaten. People attending the other churches had to attend in groups, as solo stragglers had a nasty habit of getting attacked by assailants in the dark. Volova was whipping up his people into a frenzy of rage, fear, and constant threats from anyone who wasn't them. So all that's left is dictatorship step five, moral justification. This is the truly important one to hold your dictatorship together. you got to convince your followers that no matter what horrifying, violent, or hateful actions you're encouraging them to take, it's okay because they've got the moral high ground. Hmm. Volova saw this little war erupting in Zion, a war entirely of his own making, as nothing less than good versus evil, heaven versus hell, God versus Satan. Volova claimed that only through strict morality, his interpretation of strict morality, Mm -hmm. could a soul be saved, and anyone who disagreed with him was not only going to hell, but was an active follower of Satan. Your mom, who can't or won't attend church, that's Satan's hussy. All doctors are demons. Refusing to put your very last cent in the collection plate, you're a selfish person listening to the devil whispering in your ear. So when you raise that club to beat your neighbor, it's okay. Because your neighbor's literally in league with the devil. When you set fire to that store, you've got to do it. Otherwise, their godless ways will infect your whole community. When you descend on a group of rival churchgoers, beating them so badly that a few of them will never walk again, and beating a child to death, you had to do it. You had to. Because at least now your children will be safe. I mean, sign me up to vote for this guy because I love a little moral certainty. Of course, the antidote to all of this is plurality. The willingness to accept that somebody may have a different viewpoint from you and different life experience that led them to that viewpoint. And that's okay because you've actually got more in common with them than you realize. Resist the leader that just wants to make you mad. Be skeptical of the leader that claims they're the only one you can trust. Don't allow someone to divide you up into smaller and smaller tribes. That's the only way to fight this pervasive, easy, and cowardly way of living your life. And the independents did just that. They had been factionalized before this, not really sure who they should back in an election, but what they could all agree on was not so much the candidate they wanted to put forward, but that they had to put people forward so that Volova's power would be broken. So, the election of 1909 sets the stage for this perfect storm of this particular battle. On one side, you have Volova's Theocratic Party. That's not an editorial judgment. That was their actual name, dating back <laughs> to when mean, Dowie controlled the town. Yeah, they, no, don't they, need to, the... they don't need to hide this, I don't think. They're past no, that. not at all. Absolutely. They're not, like, theocratic-flavored. No, not trying this to is get the you. Theocratic Party. Yeah, they want you to know. Okay. And they are running on a platform of strict morality and God's divine will. On the no. other side... 
You have the independents running on a platform of, come on, seriously, we've had enough, haven't you? Uh, free enterprise, free elections, and also God's divine will. Neat how God can be co-opted by other side, isn't it? The tone of the election was incredibly vicious. Volova's Sunday sermons were almost entirely about the subject, and he was unrelenting in his attacks on the opposing candidates. Notably, uh, he actually had very little to say about his own candidates, but because they were just extensions of his will, I guess he didn't really feel like he needed to. Mm-hmm. Um, Volova also pulled out another great wannabe dictator trick, uh, beginning to cast doubt on the veracity of the election well in advance, mm. basically stating that if his theocrats won, it would be a fair election, but if the independents won, it would only be through a trickery and election tampering. Oh, we can't um, have that. He started this particularly dangerous undermining well in advance and continually hammered the point home in sermons and speeches. He didn't have much of a real reason to worry. His churchgoers still outnumbered the independents, but he wanted to lay the groundwork just in case. He began to threaten local judges as well, stating that if a, quote, fair election, unquote, wasn't held, one that declared the theocrats victors, he would see any judge opposed to him thrown in jail. Hmm. Yeah, you know, like you do in a perfectly normal democracy. Uh, aside from subverting democracy, Volova also worked hard to disenfranchise voters, ensuring that only the proper people, his people, were allowed to vote in the election. His churchgoers were to be allowed to vote without challenge, it was decided, whereas everyone else needed to jump through several bureaucratic hoops before they'd be allowed to cast a ballot. You needed to provide proof of residency, which is reasonable, uh, recite the Lord's Prayer, unconstitutional and clearly aimed at newer immigrants, and make their way past the armed intimidation of Volova's police and supporters to get into the polling place. And that's not, like, that's not to be taken lightly. They would literally line the sidewalks with people holding clubs and guns, and you Mm -hmm. had to walk past them and then walk back out after casting your vote. Uh, The day of the April election was decidedly unspring-like, with cold temperatures and gray skies. It did not seem to deter voters, however, and Volova's nervousness at having free elections for the first time was justified, as his slate of candidates got, to be nice about it, their asses kicked. The closest margin of election was 6%, with most winning candidates garnering 9-11% to margins. In other words, a clear, undeniable result. So, of course, Volova fought it. Uh, The first thing he did was refuse to concede. For our non-American listeners, the American democratic process has a political norm where the losing candidate will formally concede once it's clear that they've lost. If the people of Zion voted 500 votes to 300 to oust you, you were supposed to graciously step aside, and while your candidate may have been defeated, everyone gets to cheer and take a nice bow that American democracy has prevailed for another election. Volova instructed his candidates to refuse to concede. The ousted mayor, named W. Hurd Clindenen, issued a a proclamation that stated that the old mayor and city council were still in power, and Zion's police force quickly moved to support Volova, arming themselves and barring entry to the city buildings. Uh, Volova's first tactic was to allege voter fraud. Volova declared in the press that there were no more than 735 real voters in Zion, but that 837 ballots had been cast. That's obvious fraud, right? Sure. Well, I looked at the numbers. And if we look at the census for Zion in 1910, there were 4,789 citizens. Listen, I don't want you to fact check this guy. I think we know that he's not going to tell the truth. Yeah, but I'm going to fact check him anyway because it's worth doing. (laughs) You've got 4,789 citizens. Let's be incredibly generous and say that half of those are kids, which gives us about 2,400 people of voting age. So I would pose the question, which is more plausible? 
that the winning faction committed fraud, or that of those 2,400 or so people, a mere hundred decided that they would vote for the first time in a hotly contested election. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, I, yeah. Don't <laughs> I don't yeah, know where you end up on that. It's a toss-up. Uh... <laughs> so Volova challenges the results in court, but he refused to wait for their decision. He directed the police chief to use, quote, any force he wanted, end quote. Can I just... Uh, <sighs> yeah. What is this guy taking that he has this much energy? I'm exhausted. I, it, yeah, I, no, he's, <laughs> I started he's running about on one pure... of these things. Is he doing cocaine in the back? I, n- no, he's certainly not. He's basically just running on pure spite. Okay. Oh, that is a powerful fuel. So he directs the police chief to use any force he wants to keep the rightfully elected officials out of City Hall. Mm-hmm. In fact, this is a fun note, uh, when a rumor started that the winning officials were going to swear themselves in at a different municipal building... The police chief sends out a call for Volova's faithful, who form a mob and descend on the building with guns and clubs. Nobody was there, and they dispersed and went home. One of the town attorneys, who was not one of Volova's people, had the foresight to take the keys to the city lockboxes. <laughs> so when the theocrats attempted to hold sham council meetings, they didn't have access to things like ballots and city records. Nevertheless, they illegally reappointed their police chief and tried to call for a recount. Mm-hmm. Without access to the ballots, they declared that they had, in fact, won by a few votes. Sure. The actually elected government asked them politely to produce the proof, and Volova's cronies insisted that it was true. You didn't need to see the proof. Surprisingly, no one was swayed by that argument. Yeah. Uh, the papers reported that Zion was on the verge of riot, and finally in May, the two sides had it out. One source declared that it was a 300-person fist fight, culminating in the theocrats barricading themselves in the upper floors of City Hall while the rightfully elected independents swore themselves in below them. A contemporary newspaper gives a different account, however, saying that it was a quote-unquote bloodless war in Zion, with the independents swearing themselves in and the Volova faction just doing the same. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that doesn't work. No. Uh, A few members of the ousted city council went downstairs and tried to get the town clerk to give them the poll books and were politely refused. Now, this is nice. When the independent crowd began to jeer and catcall the Volovans, Mm -hmm. the newly elected mayor firmly stated that no violence, not even violence of speech, should be used against them and said that, quote, as citizens, they have every right to be in attendance, end quote. In short, Zion now had two governments, one legal and one existing only in the mind of those loyal to Volova. Okay. The real battle came down to the city jail, where the now former police chief, who, remember, had just been illegally reappointed, had locked the doors and barricaded himself inside with food, water, and guns, threatening violence on the newly appointed police chief if he tried to enter the office. He also threatened to arrest the new police chief if the new police chief tried to enforce the law. That's a that's a bold move. That's a bold move. Yeah, it's a straight up. It's he's he's playing the long game. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's bluffing with no cards in his hand, but it's, you know, it's impressive. In the middle of all this, by the way, the town's new fire engine turns up and the poor guy delivering it nearly turned around in disgust because he didn't know which side he was supposed to deliver it to. Those things are expensive too. (laughs) You want to make sure the right person is signing your invoice for that. So the city wouldn't have clarity until the middle of June when the courts finally issued a judgment declaring the election results valid after review. Great. As part of the judgment, members of Volova's faction were not allowed to make public statements describing the election as fraudulent or illegal under pain of fine or jail time for contempt. 
Hmm. Independence cheered. Volova's faction issued a statement immediately, stating that they would never accept the results and would never declare the independence rightfully elected. Great. And uh, and that's the you know that's the the sort of taking taking our ball and going home with it mentality that sure. sort of pervades this story. At any rate, the independent victory was short lived. Because once they took the reins of Zion, they realized, to continue the metaphor, that Volova had shot the horses on his way out. The city was deep in crippling debt, while Volova had transferred most of the city's funds and the church funds to himself personally. I thought there might be something like that coming along. And then he just waited. Yep. The newly elected officers desperately tried to save Zion. They reached out to manufacturers and businesses, trying to convince them to move their businesses to Zion, where they would have a ready and willing workforce. (laughs) But it would be be great. Listen, you've got a ready and willing workforce of hardworking, God-fearing folks that wouldn't miss time due to drink or other vices. Now, that was actually a huge selling point. Sure. But they tried to, yeah, but nobody wants to touch Zion. Um, they tried to refinance the town's debt, but no bank, having been burned by Dowie and Volova, would touch them. The whole yeah. town goes into receivership. Hmm. And lo, who is that white steeded wealthy man emerging from the mist to save Zion? Why, none other than Wilbur Glenn Volova. No. Having lost the election, he simply bought the town. Every property that went into receivership, he purchased with, air quotes, his money. Uh, his money having come from the city coffers and the church, of course. And by June of 1910, Volova owned the town outright. In a huge shock, in a huge shock, uh, Volova's candidates won the next year's election in a landslide. Huh. All reports of independent voters being beaten and thrown out of town were fabrications on the part of a hostile press. Uh, independent businesses had their windows broken or just burned down. Violence against non-Volova cultists began again in a concerted effort to drive them out of town. In one of Volova's sermons, he stated, quote, We must pray for them, but we must do it with clenched fists, end quote. Clenched fists full of other people's money, am I right? So in the end, uh, the money won over the voice of the people, because of course it did. Volova learned his lesson, by the way, and Zion would not see another free election without Volova's tampering for another 30 or so years. Jeez. Wilbur Glenn Volova spent the rest of his years preaching his particular brand of my way or dragged on the highway religion, Mm -hmm. uh, enriching himself off of his followers to the tune of over $5 million while the Great Depression destroyed their lives. I hate this so much. Oh, he's very hateable. And if you see pictures of the guy, too, he looks exactly like how you're picturing him. No matter how you're picturing him, he looks like it. He believed in a doctrine that included a flat earth based on his own interpretation of the Bible, specifically that the phrases corners or edges of the earth appear in the Bible. Right. Uh, He railed against what he called the three evils of the world, evolution, astronomy, and critical thinking. He even volunteered Uh, himself. Sorry. What what was that? Three evils Uh, of the world? Yes. Evolution, astronomy, and critical thinking. Now, oh. in context, I'm sorry, what he's referring the to theories? is critical thinking of the Bible. Okay. As in, the Bible needs to be interpreted as literal fact. Anybody interpreting anything as metaphor uh, needs to be, you know, drawn and quartered. Okay. Uh, to that end, he even volunteered himself as a witness in the Scopes trial. Uh, but he was not called to okay. testify. Yeah. He was huh. not called to testify. He I mean, even offered to run for president with William, William Jennings Bryan. So there's that. Uh, It's worth pointing out that 
Uh, John Alexander Dowie did not share the flat earth views. That was Volova's own particular peculiarity. He also didn't believe in gravity, but it wasn't as big a deal to him as the flat earth thing. Keep in mind as well that Volova mm-hmm. controlled the city's education system. Of course, yeah. So all the kids in school were taught what he wanted them to know. For a while, their only textbook was the Bible. But they weren't allowed to... Think critically, critically think of it. About... No, absolutely okay. not. No. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. Yep. So he founded okay. a radio station... That was powerful enough to be heard in South America and reportedly Australia. Oh my god! Yeah, to share his belief system with the world. Gotta get that message out. Yep. Uh, as with most people in his particular line of work, he declared that the world would end in 1923, and then in mm-hmm. 1927, 1930, 1934, and 1935. So there's that. As with all dictators, of course, he died pathetic and disgraced. In 1935, after years of theocratic oppression, economic depression, and broken promises of peace and prosperity, his reign of terror finally came to an end. The people of Zion voted against the theocratic party in the election, and they did it in numbers that could not be denied or manipulated away. The newly elected school board president moved to modernize the education standards of the town, and in response, Volova literally threatened to kill his wife and him. Like... It was a. It was one of his sermons. He's just like, yeah, I'm going to kill your wife and you. The school board president but, you know, ignored him. To be fair, they were probably bathing within 50 feet of each it's other. True. I it's true. It's true. That feeling about it's it. It's true. Yeah. Did she wear eyeglasses or pants? You know what? That's an excellent question. Uh, the school yeah. board uh, president ignored him, and for the first time, the schools actually got science textbooks. Oh boy. Yep. Uh, In 1936, Volova's tabernacle and radio station were burned down by a teenager whose parents had been driven to ruin by Volova. Hmm. In 1938, Volova was declared bankrupt with debts of over a million dollars, and his churchgoers finally started to ask where all the money they donated had gone. Hmm. And I love this little part here. As a special little raised middle finger, the town council selected the image of a globe as that year's vehicle tax sticker. (laughs) Oh, that's so petty. I love it. It's so petty, and I love it. (laughs) See, Uh, it's round. (laughs) It's round, sir. Volova fled to Florida, uh, Mm. and where he was diagnosed. Florida seems like a good place for a guy like that. It would have been, but he doesn't stay there very long. He's only there long enough to be diagnosed with terminal cancer. Mm -hmm. He returns to Zion and makes a tearful public confession that he'd committed a litany of sins. He'd appropriated church funds for his own use. He'd falsified records. He'd run fraudulent elections, none of which was news to his audience. Despite his prediction that he would live over a hundred years due to his diet of Brazil nuts and buttermilk, oh, he died God. at the age of 72. You really buried the lead here. Of course he was crazy. Of course he was crazy. <laughs> he was probably getting some, some weird vitamin, way too much of it from the Brazil nuts and the buttermilk. Yep. Yeah, he basically lived on Brazil nuts and buttermilk, which he claimed would allow him to live to be... Uh, some sources say he said he'd live to 120. Some sources just vague it up as like over 100 years. At any rate, uh, at the age of 72, he finally gets to go uh, explain himself in front of his savior. Yay! Without their leader, uh, the church dwindled, reorganized, and dwindled some more. The illegal real estate arrangements were undone on a case-by-case basis, and by 1953, Zion was no different than any other city in Illinois. The final vestiges of Dowie and Volova were undone in 1990 by mm-hmm. a Supreme Court decision that forced the town to remove religious iconography from its town seal. And that's it. The long, strange history of Zion, Illinois, founded as a religious community, turned into a theocratic dictatorship, and now apparently a fairly nice place to live. I'm just trying to imagine all those kids who were taught 
from the Bible. That that yep. has to be like an entire generation of kids. Their only schooling came from reading the Bible. Yeah. Uh, did they and grow up to be okay? <laughs> he was super proud <laughs> of that, actually. Okay. Because he was saying that, you know, uh, yeah, all these scientists confuse our children by filling their heads with all this nonsense. But every child can understand that, of course, the world is flat because they can see it. Mm-hmm. Okay. it it's it's that level of non, non-engagement with the real world that is, you know, sad. Because, yeah, you're right. There's an entire lost generation of children from Zion, Illinois, who... You know, we're, I mean, we're I want to think that their secular classmates were slipping them comic books that mentioned that the earth is round. Well, they wouldn't have secular classmates because the church-going kids were in a different school than the heathen kids. Uh, cousins, maybe? Oh, no? one can only hope. But their cousins, I don't know. God, it just makes me feel really sad. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of time to have a crazy person in charge of your life. Yeah. Yeah, or a person who is just completely and unwaveringly convinced that he is the only right answer to everything. It was the Brazil nuts. Yeah, I did kind of bury the lead on that, but you know what? It's worth it for that <laughs> final little punchline at the end there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Is that really yep. the end? <laughs> that's that's it. <laughs> that's the weirdest story I've ever heard. Uh, that was amazing. Although we give you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com, or if you'd like to shame us publicly, why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My sister has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Ella? Well, we're on a theme of failed utopias here, Greg. Ooh, uh, excellent. <laughs> next week, we're going down to Brazil to talk about Fordlandia, Henry Ford's oh, absolute no. worst okay. idea. Which uh, took place in the Second 1930s. worst. Second worst. Remember, he thought Hitler was a swell he didn't dude. invest as much in Hitler as he invested in Fordlandia. Yeah, we're going to get into his anti-Semitism and Fair general enough. horribleness <laughs> as a human being. But uh, Fordlandia really throws a lot yeah. of Ford legend into light. I think it would be an interesting episode. It, 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 that sounds like an amazing disaster. And I can't wait to talk about it with you.